You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Man, Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on oh, the phone. No. Podcast. Is the beginning of the, the Air Force Sports Podcast. Yeah. It is Friday, oh, so March 18th, 2022, people. I would say I hope everybody's doing well. I would say I hope everybody is having a great day, but I know the reality of the situation. We just wrapped the first day of the NCAA tournament, and while some of you are over the moon, some of you are really excited, I also know that the results from Thursday uh, brought a great deal of pain. So what I would say is, one, I hope everybody is doing well. I do hope everybody is having a great day, and we are going to react in real time to the NCAA tournament opening night. Obviously, uh, I'm recording here about 1.15 Eastern time here on Thursday night into Friday. And I will say, it was a great day of basketball if you had no real rooting interest or if your team was lucky enough to win. The problem is, my alma mater, UConn, lost uh, in what I believe was pseudo-embarrassing fashion. We'll talk about that to New Mexico State. Credit to Chris Jans and that program over there. Uh, And of course, we are going to hit on the historic loss by Kentucky to St. Peter's, which I believe I would argue is the worst loss of the John Calipari era. And I think it's time to start asking some tough questions about the John Calipari era, questions that I thought had been put to bed that now all of a sudden are coming back to life. From there, we'll react to some of the other stuff, but those are obviously the big upsets. Iowa losing to Richmond, we'll discuss that. And we'll hit on some of the other stuff from the day. Murray State, San Francisco was awesome. Um, You know, Memphis picked up a nice win. UCLA survived. So we'll react to all of it. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is it was night one of the NCAA tournament. I should mention we may hit on a little coaching carousel at the end, Kenny Payne. But to me, the big story, the story that matters, if we don't hit on Kenny Payne, it is okay. Because the topic of the day is we just wrapped a crazy day of the NCAA tournament. And as I said, If you are a fan of a team that won or you have no real rooting interest, it was a pretty wild day, right? 215 or 212 seeds beat number five seeds. Obviously, Richmond taking care of Iowa, New Mexico State taking care of UConn. But let's start with the upset of all upsets, the stunner out of the East Regional where St. Peter's beat the University of Kentucky, okay? St. Peter's as a number 15 seed goes into the bracket 
into Indianapolis, which is essentially Kentucky territory. I think they said on the broadcast it's about an hour, hour and a half from Lexington to Indianapolis. I think I've actually done that drive before. It is not a long drive. St. Peter's goes into Indianapolis and beats Kentucky. Final score, 85-79. And we're going to get into all the details in a minute, but let me not bear the lead. The lead is pretty straightforward. This is the worst loss of the John Calipari era. And as I just said, I do think it is time, if it hasn't been done already, and it was certainly done last year during a very disappointing COVID year, I think it's time to start wondering if the best days of the Calipari era are behind us and if Calipari, uh, you know, I, I don't even know. Let's just get into it. Let's break it down and let's talk about it. Because what I would say is this, okay? So obviously over the last couple days, I have spent a ton of time looking into this NCAA tournament bracket, and I'm not saying I'm any different than anybody else who covers this sport. I mean, obviously, when I am coming on this podcast and asking you guys and girls to download it, it comes from a place of you guys trust me as somebody that is going to give you good information. And I bring it up to say I've spent a lot of time on just about all these games, and what I'll tell you is this. There were some upsets that if you dug deep enough, you could probably see coming. I told you UConn can't score. We're going to talk about UConn in a minute. You could see the scenario where New Mexico State beat them. Uh, uh, Richmond, veteran team, A-10, hot off, off the A-10 championship. You could see the scenario where they beat Iowa, even if I certainly didn't pick it. I will tell you this. I spent actually a lot of time looking into St. Peter's, and there was absolutely nothing that reflected that this game would even be very close at all. St. Peter's came into this game as one of the lowest scoring teams on the season in the NCAA tournament. And I know part of that is tempo, part of that is this, part of, the, part of it is that. But they were a team that averaged 66 points per game this year. Their front court, Kentucky strength, their front court, Oscar Sheboy, one of the greatest rebounders we've ever seen in a single season in college basketball. Kentucky has that guy. St. Peter's has... Two guys in their front court that are six foot seven, under 200 pounds. St. Peter's had a negative assist to turnover ratio, which means they averaged more turnovers per game than assists. And so I bring it up to say there were plenty of upsets that you could potentially see coming. There was no way that anyone could have possibly seen this coming unless you either just don't follow college basketball and you fill out a bracket blindly or you know somebody that plays for St. Peter's. And so to me, more than anything, that is what the crazy part about all of this is, is that it was a stunner of all stunners, and what was, I, I think, indisputable when watching this game on TV, and why Kentucky fans, I believe, are especially frustrated, is that one team came out absolutely more prepared and ready to play and better, you know, just more ready to go, in this game, and that was the St. Peter's Peacocks. We can dance around it, and you guys and girls know me. I'm not about the X's and O's. I'm not going to tell you that they did this or they did that or they hard-hedged on screens or their three-point defense was this. No, but what I can tell you is if you turn on that game, Kentucky came out like it was a December game against a no-name team in Rupp Arena, and St. Peter's came out with a game plan distinctly designed to beat the team in front of them, Kentucky. Again, I don't have all the details. I wasn't sitting in on scouting meetings, but I'll just give you an example. The TV broadcast kept referencing the fact that every time a shot went up, specifically when Kentucky had the ball on offense, 
St. Peter's put three bodies. Three bodies immediately found Oscar Shibway. Now, I know Oscar Shibway still finished with 30 and 16, but it was clear that there was a game plan and there was an idea that St. Peter's had coming into this game as to how they could beat Kentucky, and that was my biggest takeaway. This isn't an excuse for Kentucky. People, people saw it as an excuse. I said, St. Peter's was the better coach team. They were better prepared. And some people were like, you're making excuses for Kentucky's loss. I'm like, no, I'm not. I just crushed John Calipari. What are you talking about? But that's the bottom line. And so when you look at this Kentucky loss, yeah, there are some people that some way, shape, or form can make an excuse for Kentucky. I'm not going to do it right now, though. People would say, oh, you know, they, they missed a bunch of free throws. That's very true. Kentucky was 23 of 35 for the game, one of six in overtime. They went four of 15 from three. But the bottom line is one team was better coached, one team was better prepared, one team came out looking like they didn't have a scouting report because they were just getting ready for the next game, and that was the University of Kentucky. And so when it comes to this, you can blame the players. You can blame free throws. You can say Kellen Grady, and I hate to pick on one player in specific, but really, really, really struggled. But at the end of the day, it falls on one person, and it falls on John Calipari. When I look at this whole situation, it all falls on John Calipari, and we need to have a serious conversation about John Calipari, okay? I'm not saying that John Calipari needs to be fired. I am not saying that at all. I did not say that last year when Kentucky was 9-16 and 16 or whatever. They were 9-15, and 9-16 and 16 during their COVID year. But I also don't think that we can ignore trends on John Calipari that his best days are behind him and that this program is no longer operating at the level that it was six, seven, eight years ago. First of all, I would just say look at the recent just results in general. Let's not say they've been terrible, but remember this was, in John Calipari's own words, the gold standard. 2010, John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, all those guys, we don't need to relitigate history. But you have five first-round picks. You have easily the best team in college basketball that year, even though they didn't win a national championship. 2011, you make a Final Four. 2012, you win a national championship. 2013, you lose everybody. You go to the NIT, whatever. 2014, you play for a championship. 2015, you make a Final Four. I would argue that that era of Kentucky basketball ended in 2017. If you remember, that was the year they make the Elite Eight. They beat Lonzo Ball and UCLA in the Sweet 16. And in the Elite Eight, they lose essentially on a buzzer beater. Luke May, North Carolina, hits a shot with like 0.8 seconds left. North Carolina goes to the Final Four. North Carolina that year wins a national championship. Kentucky loses with De'Aaron Fox, Bam Adebayo, whatever. I bring it up to say that was the last team, in my opinion, that looked like the early era John Calipari Kentucky teams. Three lottery picks, Bam Adebayo, De'Aaron Fox, and Malik Monk and was a shot away from going to the Final Four where they probably would have been favored to win the national championship. Since then, here are the results, and this is not my opinion. This is just a fact. So keep in mind that from 2010 until 2015, those first six years, Calipari goes to four Final Fours. 2017, he goes to an Elite Eight. Here's what they have done since. 2018, whole team is freshmen and sophomores. They're a number five seed. They lose in the Sweet 16 to number nine to a number nine seed, Kansas State, in probably prior to tonight, prior to Thursday night, the worst loss of the John Calipari era, okay? Lose to Bruce Weber, who just resigned, whatever. You lose to Bruce Weber in a year where the whole path was set up for you. Kansas State got to the Sweet 16 because the number one seed in that region, Virginia, lost 
in the opening round. And oh, by the way, you had had to beat Loyola Chicago to go to the Final Four. You can write that off as a one-off deal in 2018. 2019, really good team. Kentucky loses in the Elite Eight, P.J. Washington, Tyler Hero, to an Auburn team that they had already beaten twice. 2020, there's no tournament. I get it. I understand. They had a team that was maybe good enough to win the national championship that year. We'll never know, but 2021 was a disaster, and 2022, we all know what happened. You lose as a two-seed to a 15 seed in St. Peter's. What's especially disappointing for Kentucky fans, I think, is that the excuses that have been used in the past are no longer really applicable, right? What was the excuse in the past? Well, we're so young and we're all freshmen and this is what happens and, you know, we're just trying to build boys into men and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose in March. And I'm not saying that's an excuse. Like, 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 and I'm not even saying it's a bad thing. Like Calipari, like it worked in 2010, 2014, 2015. 12 obviously even 2015 because at least in those years you're winning the SEC regular season you're winning the SEC tournament you're making final fours you're competing at the highest level for a national championship and I think that's what's especially frustrating about this season this season was supposed to be different this season was where you tore everything down last offseason and built it back up you changed your coaching staff you went hard in the portal. You said, I don't care about NBA talent. I don't care about one and done. Get me the best veteran players in college basketball. And you build this team that you believe is built differently, but built to succeed in March. Instead, not only do you lose to a 15 seed, but here's where I would be concerned if I was a Kentucky fan. This team clearly peaked probably about eight weeks ago. That's not even my opinion. This is a fact. I put this out on Twitter, and I, you know, a, lot of, a lot of you may have seen it. Some of you probably didn't. But check out this. This is a mind-blowing stat, okay? So when we thought that Kentucky was a team that was good enough to win a national championship, it was because from about Christmas until February 1st, they were just steamrolling everybody. They beat North Carolina by 29 points in Las Vegas at the CBS Sports Classic. They beat Tennessee by 28 at Rupp Arena in January. They beat Kansas by 18 at Fog Allen Fieldhouse in late January heading into February. Well, guess what? Not only did Kentucky lose tonight, but look, look at what those other teams did. North Carolina beat Marquette by 28. Tennessee won by 30-plus against Longwood. Kansas won by 27 against Texas Southern. And I know it's only Texas Southern and it's only Longwood. But Kansas did what they were supposed to do. Tennessee did what they were supposed to do. Kentucky lost to St. Peter's in a game where they were clearly outcoached and they were outprepared. And so to me, I think that's where you get frustrated if you're a Kentucky fan coming out of, uh, out of Thursday night. And we're going to talk about this in a minute with UConn. It's one thing to lose in the tournament. Everybody loses. There's only one team that at the end of the tournament is truly happy. But it's another thing to lose a game like this where you are unprepared, unready to go, and you lose to a team. And this is no disrespect at all to St. Peter's. Shaheen Holloway did an incredible job having his team ready, ready to go, prepared, on top of everything, etc. This is not a knock on St. Peter's. But at the same time, it's one thing if you lose and the other team just goes crazy. I mean, even as a UConn fan, Teddy Allen went for 37. I mean, he was hitting impossible shots. I'm frustrated as a UConn fan. But for a Kentucky fan, you're sitting there saying, we lost because we were not ready to go, and they were. And what I think is especially concerning if you're a Kentucky fan is it's exactly what I said a minute ago. Nobody's saying John Calipari's getting fired, nor should he be. To be clear, I'm not saying he needs to be fired. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm not saying he needs to go. But what I am saying is when he goes back to campus and he sits down and he really evaluates everything, what else is there to change, right? Because last offseason, he changed the coaching staff. Last offseason, he said he was going to be more aggressive in the portal, bring in older players. He said he was going to switch up the offense, make it more three-point spacing, ball movement, whatever. He changed everything, and you have somehow the worst result of the John Calipari era at Kentucky. And so for the final time, and we'll move on to some of these other games. I'm not saying Calipari needs to be fired. I'm not saying that, uh, you, know, uh, sh- you know, shake it up. Because, by the way, at the end of the day, and I, don't, I know fans hate when you say stuff like this. I, you know, I, I don't know who you get that's better, and I don't know who you get that's available. I mean, look at what's going on in college basketball right now. Indiana ended up hiring an NBA assistant. Louisville ended up hiring an NBA assistant. Um, North Carolina hired an assistant internally last offseason. Arizona hired a Gonzaga assistant. So I, I know Kentucky fans just want them out and want somebody else. There's nobody else out there. But what I would say is I think it's pretty indisputable at this point with the results that we've gotten that this is just not the same program that it was. And I have truly believed over the last three, four, five years, you're get, when you recruit the way that Calipari does, when you, when you flip over a roster, you're going to have highs and you're going to have lows and you're going to have peaks and you're going to have valleys. And maybe this was just the, the, the wrong team on the wrong night because it was a mostly successful season. But at the same time, you can't keep making excuses. You can't keep saying it's this, it's that, it's the other thing. At some point, this is becoming a trend. As I said, this is now the, you know, five straight years, really going back to 2017. You've made three tournaments over that stretch. One NCAA tournament was canceled. And you've had three really disappointing losses in each of their own rights. All three, you would say that they were the less prepared, less ready to go team and underachieved and lost to a team that they shouldn't have. And then, of course, last year you had 9-16. and 16. And so it's going to be a long offseason in Kentucky. Calipari is not going anywhere unless, you know, somehow he convinces somebody in the NBA to, to, to you know, whatever. I'm not even going to go there. Calipari is not going anywhere. I'm not saying he should be fired. I'm just saying this is a very, very volatile and interesting time to be a Kentucky fan. Let's get into some of the other results. Uh, and there's no other way to sugarcoat it. Let's get to the other probably, I would say, very, very, very big result from the day. And that was my alma mater, UConn, facing the New Mexico State Aggies. Final score, New Mexico 70, UConn 63. And first of all, before we get into all the details, let me do what I probably didn't do a good enough job of a minute ago. Let me credit New Mexico State. Chris Jans, their head coach, is a really good head coach. He's got a little bit of a volatile background. You can Google it. You know, he left his last job under... Interesting circumstances, but nobody has ever questioned if this guy could coach ball, okay? Great head coach. There's rumors that he might actually be the next head coach in Mississippi State now that Ben Howland's out, but he had his team more prepared, ready to go, and shout out to Teddy Allen. Teddy Allen was the, the I, don't, I don't know if you can call him a breakout star. He played it in Nebraska last year. He played at West Virginia earlier in his career. He played at Wichita for a short time, never actually played there, but he enrolled there. I don't know if you can call him the breakout star when he was at Nebraska and he was awesome last year, but 37 points, some really, really, really impossible shots, and New Mexico State advances. But at the same time, the UConn situation is unfortunately for UConn fans like myself, it was a lot like the Kentucky situation. And it was a lot like the Kentucky situation, not because they lost, not because they lost to a lower seed, 
but because of how it went down. It, the frustrating part, if you're a UConn fan, let me backtrack, right? Because when all of this happened, I looked at the whole situation. Let me backtrack, okay? When the bracket came out, what did I tell you about UConn? I said, I have them losing to Arkansas in round two because of the fact that they are very limited offensively, because of the fact that they go through long stretches where they can't score, okay? So I bring it up as it pertains to this game for this reason. It's because of the fact that, yes, UConn had a very clear limitation, a very clear problem. But the one thing that you could never question about UConn was their toughness, their physicality, their focus. They might win, they might lose, but they're never going to get out-hustled, they're never going to get out-tough, they're never going to get out anything. They might lose because the other team's better, but they're not going to lose because the other team wants it more. And the frustrating thing for UConn fans everywhere, and I know because I heard from a bunch of them, including my mom, who was pissed off like everybody else was, it was the first time that I can ever remember, certainly this year, I don't want to say back to year one under Dan Hurley when he inherited Kevin Ollie's players, but this was the first time of this season where UConn came into a game and the other team, a lot like what I just talked about with Kentucky, was more focused, more locked in, more ready to go, better prepared, and more importantly, out-toughed them, right? And I think that's where the frustration is with UConn fans. Not that UConn lost this game, but that when your entire program is built on, we might not have the most skill. We might not shoot 40% from three. We might not have a million NBA draft picks, but nobody is going to outgrit, outgrime, outtough us, and then you get outgritted, outgrimed, outtoughed on the, in the biggest game of the season. UConn fans are furious. And oh, by the way, this is the second year in a row where UConn came in as a very comfortable favorite into the NCAA tournament, and they lost. Last year, weird deal. It was a bubble. You lose to Maryland. This year, there are no excuses. Regular team, you know, regular situation, New Mexico, fly, New Mexico State flies all the way across country. You're playing, whatever, five, six, seven hours from UConn, from campus, and you still lose this game, and so it falls directly on Dan Hurley. And again, Hurley's like, like Calipari. Nobody's saying you have to fire Hurley, and to be abundantly clear for any UConn fan that is listening, for, if Coach Hurley, if you're listening, I love what Dan Hurley has done at UConn. I think he's absolutely incredible. I think he's exactly what this program needed, okay? But at the same time, there are some very concerning trends about this team. I saw this stat. It absolutely blew me away, okay? So check out this stat that I, heard, that I saw on Twitter, and I would give credit, but somebody sent it to me as a text, not with the actual Twitter. But here is Dan Hurley's record in big games as a UConn head coach. He is currently 1-4 against Jay Wright. The one win, oh, we talked about it on this podcast. He's 0-5 against Greg McDermott and Creighton. He's 2-2 in the Big East Tournament. He is 0-2 in the NCAA Tournament, obviously losing this evening on Thursday night into Friday as a 12 seed. And so I bring it up because, as this person pointed out, in the biggest games that he has coached at UConn, the games that really matter against the teams that you have to beat to reestablish yourself. And I know I did the whole random, I did the whole 20 minutes on how UConn's back and UConn's this and UConn's that. But in the biggest games for Dan Hurley, he is 3-13 and 13 in the games that really matter, in the games that really define you. And again, I'm not trying to 
put everything back to Kentucky, but <laughs> this is the frustrating part about Kentucky, right? doesn't matter if you beat whoever. Rick Barnes is kicking your butt right now. Eric Musselman's won his last two games against Kentucky. Uh, Bruce Pearl beat you earlier this year. And it's the same with Dan Hurley in the Big East. And so again, to be abundantly clear, not saying he has to go, not saying I don't love him. I love how he has elevated this program. But to take the next step, you got to start beating some teams that matter. And right now, 3-13 and 13 against the teams that most matter if you are a UConn fan following this team. What I would also say, and again, comes from a place of love. Sometimes There's such a thing, I, I tell my wife all the time, tough love is still love. Sometimes you got to be tough. Sometimes you got to be honest. No nonsense. I think Rick Barnes calls it pushing P. I don't know. Tennessee fans, correct me if I'm wrong. But I bring it up because the problem with UConn is they're not winning these big games, and I am very curious how this program evolves, okay? Not blaming Coach Hurley, not saying he's terrible, not saying he's got to go, but what I will say is this program needs to evolve, especially now as some of the, the certainly the players that he inherited from Kevin Ollie will, will leave the program after this game. Isaiah Whaley, Tyler Polly were the last two players that came from the Kevin Ollie era. But then as some of these older players move out, what I would say is UConn kind of in the same way, again, that Kentucky was, was talking about this last year. They play a way that I don't know if it works in 2022, okay? And what I mean is this. It's what I said a minute ago. UConn is built on toughness, physicality, out-hustling you, out-working you, out-rebounding you, whatever. The problem was when UConn played these super-skilled teams, again, one and two this year against Villanova, still haven't beaten Creighton, which is all skill. The question for me becomes, if you watch UConn, I know we have a lot of UConn fans that listen to this podcast. It feels like the program needs to evolve as Coach Hurley stays there, and the program needs to get more skill in the program as opposed to a bunch of guys that want to bang down low and offensive rebound and out-rebound you. And so that will be the interesting next step. I thought it was interesting, UConn, I'm not saying things would have been different, but the fact remains, they have a freshman named Jordan Hawkins who's probably their most skilled player. Can shoot threes, can take people off the dribble, all that good stuff. He might be a great player next year. He was unavailable on Thursday night because of a concussion, but I just bring it up to say he is the kind of player that you need. Again, you can't go into games in college basketball with two bigs that can't shoot. You can't go into college basketball in this day and age with wings that can't create, with wings that can't hit an open jumper. So listen, I'm not going to belabor the point on UConn. Uh, it was just such a frustrating, disappointing loss because I think, like all of these other upsets, it's one thing when you lose. When you, it's one thing when you lose, period. But it's one thing you can accept losing to a team that's just as good or better than you. You can accept if something weird happens or if there's foul trouble or if somebody twists an ankle or if somebody has to go back to the locker room or the refs screw you, whatever. But when your entire program is built on physicality and toughness and you get out-physicaled and out-toughed in the biggest game of the season, yeah, there's going to be frustrated UConn fans. For the final time, not saying Coach Hurley, you know, whatever. I'm just saying, this program has to evolve. This program has to get better. Dan Hurley, 3-13 and 13 in his biggest games as UConn's head coach and really his biggest games since this program has evolved into the next tier, obviously following uh, the departure of Kevin Ollie couple other results, <laughs> I'll tell you this. You know who's kind of off the hook because of the fact that UConn lost the way they did and Kentucky certainly lost the way that they did? The Iowa Hawkeyes are kind of off the hook because Kentucky takes a huge L as a two seed. UConn takes an L as 
you know, a seven-point favorite over a team from the WAC. But Iowa was obviously the first big loser of the day. I'll just say this, a couple things really quick. One, yes, I had Iowa going deep into the tournament. That's on me. I got to take the L. When we do the next where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, that's probably going to lead the segment of what I did wrong. I picked Iowa to make the Final Four. Picked Kentucky too. Not that you care about my bracket. The bracket's not doing very well right now. But what I would say about Iowa really quick is I kind of start to wrap this segment. Maybe we'll do a little bit of Kenny Payne on the back end. What I would say about Iowa is this. First of all, I'm done with the Big Ten. Okay, I am just so done with the Big Ten. In terms of this game specifically, what I will say probably did not give Richmond enough credit coming into this game. Richmond, of course, uh, was, it, Richmond's kind of actually a really cool story. They were set to make the NCAA tournament for the first time in forever in 2020. Then, of course, the pandemic cancels it. The entire team comes back because of COVID last year. It doesn't really work out. They do go to Rupp Arena, win early, but they miss the NCAA tournament. All of the players were essentially ready to leave the program. And then all the players get an extra year because of COVID. And they all decide to come back. Like I was reading a story on, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday night. Like they literally have guys on their bench that were like applying for jobs after last season. Like I'm done. I'm done playing college basketball. I'm out. It's over. And then they know they have an extra year and they all decided to come back. And so one, it is kind of a really cool March story. It is a really cool March story as this team had a chance in 2020 that was supposed to be their breakthrough year. It doesn't happen. They come back last year. doesn't happen. They get the extra year. Now they get to the NCAA tournament. They pull the upset. But to me, the real story is Iowa and it's the Big Ten. And what I would say is, first of all, I had a bunch of Big Ten fans. Oh, how come the Big Ten is overrated because Iowa lost, but the SEC isn't overrated because Kentucky lost? First of all, let's just use our functioning brains, okay? Big Ten last year, most teams in the NCAA tournament. Uh, one of them made the Sweet 16. It was Michigan, the regular season champ. This year, already, Indiana makes a playing game, gets destroyed by St. Mary's. Um, you know, whatever. I'm trying to think. Rutgers loses to Notre Dame. Michigan did take care of Colorado State. But Iowa, as a double-digit favorite, lost. And so the question becomes, was Iowa just doomed? Was Iowa overrated? Is the Big Ten overrated? And what I would say is, I truly do the big, uh, here's the thing, the Big Ten is overrated, but it's not for the reason that you think. It's not because yell and scream and argue on social media, but this is a point that I've been trying to make for a long time. The Big Ten is actually overrated, and I'm going to explain why, okay? The reason the Big Ten is overrated, the reason the Big Ten continues, continues to get the most teams in the NCAA tournament, even though every year those teams stink once they get there, is because of the fact and I give the Big Ten credit for this. This is, And by the way, what I'm about to say is not a theory. It's not a hypothesis. It's not a whatever. It's a pretty much indisputable fact. The Big Ten has figured out basically how to manipulate the computers to allow them to have a high net ranking to allow them to get the most teams in. That isn't my opinion. That isn't a conspiracy theory. I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat. That is an indisputable fact. Let me explain why, okay? The way the net works, and I'm not going to get into a ton, a million different details, but essentially the way the net works is that you are rewarded for playing the most big games you could play. Like according to the net, you should just play, everybody should play only power conference schools, okay? And the net really does reward you. The net really rewards you more for quote unquote good losses 
than it does bad wins. In other words, let me explain. It rewards a team like the Big Ten for in the out-of-conference playing, say, in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. I'm just trying to think. Michigan is a great example. Michigan, this, this was their schedule in the out-of-conference. They played Arizona, but they lost. They played North Carolina at North Carolina, but they lost. They played San Diego State at home. They did win that game. They played Seton Hall at home. They lost. Why is that important? Because in the computer's eyes, it's better to have a bunch of quote-unquote good losses, which means losses to good teams, than it is to have bad wins. Bad wins would be playing Central Connecticut, Eastern Kentucky, Eastern Illinois, um, Montana, Montana State, whatever. The more power conference teams you can play, the better it looks in the computers. So what does that have to do with the Big Ten? Well, what it has to do with the Big Ten is pretty straightforward. They play by far the most power conference teams of anybody. First of all, they have a 20-game Big Ten season, okay? So what is it? The SEC, the Big 12, they only play 18 regular season games. So that's already two more right there in the Big Ten. On top of that, they play the Big Ten ACC Challenge. That's an extra game. They play the Gavit Games, which is basically the Big East Big Ten Challenge. They usually play in conference tournaments, or uh, uh, the, the preseason Thanksgiving tournaments, so the Maui Invitational. Wisconsin played in the Maui Invitational. Um, Michigan State played in the Battle for Atlantis. That's another two or three right there. So you do some quick math. You can only play 31 regular season games, okay? You're playing 20 league games, you're playing the Big Ten ACC Challenge. You're playing the Gavit Games. That's 22. And then you're potentially playing like two more in, say, the Maui Invitational, the whatever. And then, oh, by the way, there's other random games. So, for example, Wisconsin has a rivalry game with Marquette. That's good for the computers. Um, you know, whoever. I can't think of any other perfect examples. But the point I'm trying to make, this is why the Big Ten always gets the most teams in college basketball's NCAA tournament. It is because they have manipulated the system, they have cooked the books, and so this is why we see situations like this. Now, in the case of Iowa, I didn't think they were obviously overrated. They were a team that all season long, I thought, really peaked in February and into March. They won the conference tournament last weekend, they were playing really well, their only loss really in the last month of the season was at Illinois on the final day of the regular season, came down to the wire, but it is what it is. And as far as I was concerned, I don't know what else there is to say. But what I am telling you, a lot of people have asked me, why does the Big Ten always get the most teams? Well, it's because of exactly what I said. You can go back and look. The last year before they went to 20 league games, they had about three, four, five NCAA tournament bids. Since then, they've had eight, nine, ten consistently. And for the most part, those teams have underachieved. So it's disappointing. It's frustrating. It's upsetting. But I'm telling you, that's why it happens. Oh, let's wrap really quick. A um, couple other results from, from Thursday that I just want to give credit to. One, credit to Memphis. They looked awesome. Took care of Boise State. Penny Hardaway picks up his first NCAA tournament win. I'm telling you, they could potentially give Gonzaga big-time problems on Saturday. Uh, Arkansas takes care of business against Vermont. That was just a battle back and forth. Listen, I think we all knew. Um, talking to Arkansas fans, we all kind of knew like this was going to be a tough game. Vermont did, in fact, make it a very, very, very tough game on, on, uh, on Arkansas, but Arkansas wins. What else happened? Shout out to Providence, by the way. Beat South Dakota State. Another win for the luckiest team in college basketball. Everybody says they're lucky because they win a lot of close games. They take care of business. Tennessee just destroyed Longwood, okay? 
and I said this, and I truly believe it. I'm not saying that Tennessee is definitively going to win the national championship or they're the definitive best team in college basketball. I think you can actually make a case the two best teams in this tournament could potentially meet up in the Elite Eight when Tennessee and Arizona play. We talked about it throughout the week. But what I would say is this. There's nobody playing better than Tennessee right now. Arizona's playing well. Um, Villanova's playing well, whatever. Nobody's playing better than Tennessee. They beat Longwood, as I said, by 30-plus points. Uh, Finally, just a really quick shout-out. Murray State-San Francisco, if you stayed up, that game was awesome. That game was awesome. Credit to both teams. And this is what's so great about the NCAA tournament, right, is that you have a scenario where there's two schools that nobody really cares about except for the bracket, and they just play a bananas game. Uh, Shout-out to Jamari Bouye from San Francisco, 36 points. He and Teddy Allen were by far the two best players on, uh, on Thursday. Great effort from Murray State. Five different players in double figures. Listen, I thought you saw at the end why Murray State was a 30-plus win team, why they went 30-2 and in the regular season. They just got dudes that can play. Tevin Brown made a bunch of really tough plays. He finishes with 17 points, 8 rebounds, 3 assists. K.J. Williams, 18 points and 7 rebounds for Murray State. They now advance. And you want a feel-good Cinderella story? I mean, it's not a feel-good Cinderella story if you're a, uh, if you're a Kentucky fan. But with Kentucky's loss, Murray State is now a win against St. Peter's away from advancing to the Sweet 16. They would potentially play Purdue there. By the time you guys and girls listen to this, you may know what happened with Purdue. But credit Murray State. Also, I'll say one more thing. And then we'll stop. We'll take a break. Maybe get to, this, get to some Kenny Payne. Credit to Creighton, man. Creighton just will not die. They played San Diego State, okay? They were down seven at the half. They were down like... 10 with like eight minutes to go, and they found a way to win it overtime. I mean, this is a team, I've said it before, but they lost all five starters off last year's team. They were down eight points with 11 minutes to go. They lose all five starters from last year. Starting point guard, Sharif Mitchell coming into the season, plays like three games, gets injured. The backup point guard who then becomes the starter, Ryan Nemhard, Andrew Nemhard's brother, gets hurt with about four, five, six games to go. What does Creighton do? They win at the end of the regular season. They go to the Big East Tournament. They beat Marquette. They beat Providence. They play in the Big East Championship game. Almost beat Villanova. Now they go to the NCAA Tournament, and they beat San Diego State 72-69. to They will now face Kansas in the second round. But yeah, those are the big takeaways from thir- what was it Thursday's NCAA Tournament. So what I want to do, I want to take a quick break. I do want to wrap very quickly. Uh, Kenny Payne, the next Louisville head coach. Really, really, really interesting. He should be official on Friday. I believe he's already in town. He flew in on Thursday afternoon. I saw my buddy Nick Coffey uh, put out some pictures and videos and all that stuff. But Kenny Payne, the next head coach at Louisville, we're going to talk about that. What does it mean for pretty much everything? Pretty much everything. We'll be right back. I do want to give a little bit of time to Kenny Payne. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. Do want to start to wrap things up here. And I do want to talk a little bit about the college basketball coaching carousel. We all know this is that time of year. There are jobs that are coming open. There are jobs that are starting to close up. And on Wednesday, we got closure on what I would argue is probably, barring something shocking, the single biggest job that is going to open up this spring. We started to get some closure on that. That job is, of course, the University of Louisville. Chris Mack resigned middle of the week after a loss to Virginia back about five, six, seven weeks ago. 
He appears to be living his best life. I think he went to the Super Bowl. He's a big Bengals fan. But Chris Mack is out. And on Wednesday, we started to get closure on what appears to be the guy who is going to be the next head coach. And it is not surprising at all. On Wednesday, John Rothstein reported that uh, as of Friday, so it's not official yet as I record here, but that Kenny Payne, the former Louisville basketball star, played on a national championship team there in the 1980s, former Kentucky assistant coach, current New York Knicks head coach, Kenny Payne is set to become the next head coach at Louisville. Uh, Of course, as I just said a minute ago, it will not be official until Friday, but basically we're at the cross the T's, dot the I's, make it official on Friday segment of the Kenny Payne courtship by the University of Louisville. And so let's get into it. Let's break it down. But before I do, let me just say one thing. Listen, I can beat around the bush. I can pretend. I can this. I can that. I can bury the lead. I really, really, really like this hire for Louisville. So let's get into why. And let's talk a little bit about this hire. Because to me, this was actually quietly a very, very, very fascinating hire. As I told you, when Louisville, when this job opened up, I said, it's going to be really interesting. And this is no knock on Kenny Payne, by the way. But I said, this is going to be really interesting. Because anytime a big-time job like this opens up, we want to immediately assume the biggest, craziest name is going to take the job. The problem at Louisville, of course, was they have an interim AD, and when they fired Chris Mack, uh, or he resigned, or however you want to call it, when Chris Mack left, they had an interim AD, they had an interim school president. And so the idea that you were going to go out and get a Grand Slam home run hire, it wasn't looking very good, and Kenny Payne was kind of the guy, and again, this is not a knock on him, but because he's a former player, because he was obviously on part of some really great coaching staffs at both Kentucky and the University of Oregon before that, he was the very obvious guy that was going to say yes. And so my understanding of this coaching search was that the interim AD at Louisville really did want to do like a really big coaching search and go after the biggest names that he could possibly go after like any AD would want to do in this situation. There was just a couple problems with that process. The first was that there was actually a lot of pressure internally at Louisville to hire Kenny Payne. He's well-liked, he's well-respected, he's a former player, he obviously will reunite the fan base from the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, all the former players love him, a lot of the alums love him, and obviously he was part of one of the great runs in the history of the University of Louisville. So one, there was a lot of pressure internally to hire Kenny Payne, and then two, on top of that, it sounds great on paper to want to go out and hire the biggest, craziest, boldest name that you could possibly get. And I'm not saying that maybe Mick Cronin, maybe somebody else was potentially interested. There's just one problem. All those good coaches, all the guys that you want, all the guys that you want to leave a good job for your great job at Louisville, they are still coaching right now as we speak. NCAA tournament tipped off on Thursday. A lot of those guys were coaching today. And so if you want one of those great guys, what ends up happening is you have to wait. You have to wait this week. You potentially have to wait next week. You could be waiting three weeks depending on who the person is that you want to interview. And so in the process of doing that, not only are chances pretty good that you're probably not going to get that guy, but there is a very good chance that you're going to lose the candidate that you know will unite your fan base in Kenny Payne. I thought it was very interesting this weekend, and I tweeted about it, but there was a report out from Louisville, not from the university, but from a a local outlet there, that Kenny Payne, in addition to Louisville, was receiving interest from Missouri and Georgia. What I can tell you is with due respect to Kenny Payne and with due respect to that reporter, that reporter's crap, okay? I, Kenny Payne was not a candidate. I'm, def- I'm positive at, at Georgia. 
And I don't think he was a candidate at Missouri. It doesn't really make sense. But what Kenny Payne and his camp was doing was putting out that story basically saying, hey, Louisville, I got options, and I'm not sitting around here waiting forever. I'm not waiting six weeks so you can wait until after the Final Four to interview everybody that you want to interview. If you're serious about me as a candidate, you better hire me right now. And whether that was the sole reason why I got done over the last day or so, it doesn't really matter because Kenny Payne is going to be your next head coach at Louisville. And as I said, I really, really do like this hire. And so let's get into why I like this hire. First of all, the one thing we know about Kenny Payne, that man can recruit, right? And it's so funny, right? Because Indiana, of course, on Tuesday wins the play-in game in the NCAA tournament. And my next 24 hours, my Twitter mentions were a mess. Because obviously, this time last year, I was criticizing the Mike Woodson hire. Now, I love Mike Woodson now. My boy Mike F. and Woodson, baby. But I was criticizing the Mike Woodson hire, and I was thinking how these two hires are very, very, very different. I didn't like the Mike Woodson hire because he was a 60-year-old man, 62, 63, whatever he is, coming into college basketball at a time that it's changing, recruiting is evolving, we have NIL, and I said, I don't know if he's ready to handle that. The one thing with Mike Woodson, though, that I never questioned, I said he's a darn good coach. He was a good coach with the Atlanta Hawks. He was a good coach with the New York Knicks. But those are my concerns with Mike Woodson. Why do I bring it up with Kenny Payne? It's the exact opposite. Never been a head coach before, so obviously there are going to be questions and concerns about him as a head coach. But the one thing that you can't question about Kenny Payne, that man can recruit. Was obviously part of Calipari's staff forever, was, was, was big time at Oregon there for a while. And to me, at the end of the day, I'll just say this. If I had the choice between a great X's and O's guy that has no interest in recruiting or the guy that loves to recruit that I'm not sure on the X's and O's, I'm going to take the guy that loves to recruit because at the end of the day, this is a talent business and the teams with the best players generally do pretty well this time of year. And it's funny, it goes back to, I remember, remember when Kirby Smart won that game against Florida and Kirby Smart comes out and they're asking him how it happened and why it happened. He said, I got really good players. I can't take credit for this. And then Dan Mullen comes out and says, I don't want to talk about recruiting. It was like, that's the difference between the two teams. One coach loves to recruit, one coach doesn't. And we know that Kenny Payne does in fact love to recruit. Now, what I would say is I know there's been some pushback about, well, you know, he's only been at Nike schools. He's at an Adidas school. I don't really think that's that big of a factor. First of all, sometimes a lot of this stuff is overrated, is overvalued. Zion Williamson famously played for an Adidas AAU program. He ends up at Duke. So it's not as though that's a be-all, end-all. By the way, I'd also mention, I don't think Louisville's going to be Adidas for very much longer. Put that one in the back of your head and remember that one. But beyond that, it's not really about that. First of all, he's going to get high school players because he's a great recruiter, builds relationships. I've talked to parents who have been recruited by Kenny Payne. Every single one of them swears by him, okay? So there's that element of it. But then beyond that, what I would also say is this. The reason I think Kenny Payne is going to have success, he loves to recruit, and he's coming back to college basketball in the transfer portal era, baby. That's right. The season is ending. Games are over. Teams are losing. And I'm just telling you right now, I follow the portal about as close as anybody. That portal is humming. The last day or two, we started to get real names in the portal. Jalen Bridges from West Virginia started every game in the portal. Uh, Cam Hayes, former four-star, NC State in the portal. So I'm, I'm just throwing out names. I'm not saying they're going to go one place or the other. I'm just saying real teams, real, co- uh, real players are starting to come into the portal. And college basketball is so unique. You only need three or four guys. You only play six or seven. So if Kenny Payne can go out and do in the portal, I'm not saying he's going to do it verbatim 
as good as John Calipari did this year. But John Calipari flipped an entire roster, an entire program through the portal last summer. Eric Musselman does it every single year. And Kenny Payne can get talent into that program right away, and that's the one thing that that program needs more than anything else is talent. Now, again, we've never seen him coach a game, but what I would also say on top of everything else, we know he's going to get players. We know he's going to get talent. Let's also keep in mind one very important thing with this Kenny Payne deal. And that very important thing, I think we all know what it is. It's that the ACC stinks. I mean, the ACC is terrible, okay? We're talking about a conference that has what? Duke, Carolina, Virginia Tech, and Notre Dame, I think, are the only teams from the conference in the NCAA tournament. Maybe I'm missing one, but Virginia Tech got in because they won the conference tournament. Notre Dame got in because they're one of the last four teams playing, and that's really it. And so you look at the ACC right now, just think about the ACC that Kenny Payne is walking into. The ACC that Kenny Payne is walking into, Duke is going to have a first-year, first-time head coach next year. Now, sometimes it works out. Tommy Lloyd's awesome at Arizona, but sometimes it doesn't. You're going to have North Carolina, year two under Hubert Davis. Hubert Davis, they got better over the course of the year, but the jury's still out on Hubert Davis, and there's a pretty good chance that if Caleb Love or Armando Baycott leave, next year's North Carolina team isn't going to be as talented as this year's North Carolina team. Syracuse is a mess. Notre Dame hasn't been good forever. Georgia Tech, you go, I mean, you just go on and on. Everybody in that conference is awful. They're unwatchable. NC State, I love Kevin Keats. That program bottomed out this year. Now, they had some injuries, whatever. But the point I'm trying to make is the ACC is as wide open as it's ever been. And I believe that Kenny Payne, if he gets the right players and the right assistant coaches and just does this the way that I think that he is capable of doing it, I think he's going to be really, really, really good right away. A couple other factors in this that are very interesting. First of all, what I would say is... This Kentucky-Louisville rivalry got really interesting. And it's funny, for years I've heard people say, you know, Duke-North Duke, Carolina gets all the love in this college basketball rivalry conversation. But at the end of the day, Kentucky-Louisville is more heated, it's more angry, it's more this, it's more that. Duke has a bunch of alums that aren't even from North Carolina. You go down to school, you go back to New York, New Jersey, work on Wall Street, whatever. It's not as heated as, as Kentucky-Louisville. Fans living on top of fans. Well... I think it just got a lot more interesting. Now, a lot of Kentucky fans and Louisville fans, too, pointed out the fact that John Calipari really does like Kenny Payne. So it's going to be intense, but it's not going to be angry. Uh, it did feel at times angry when Rick Pitino was there. It got angry at the end with Chris Mack after he released that video two years ago, after he uh, didn't play at Rupp Arena this year, and people questioned, did, were they really on COVID pause or was there something else going on? So John Calipari does respect Kenny Payne, so I don't think it's going to get like that. But you talk about an interesting rivalry. And I'll tell you this. I've been told by some people that would know. John Calipari really pushed for this, this, this too. Now, I'm not saying John Calipari has any say in who Louisville hires, but John Calipari was like, okay, teacher versus pupil, assistant versus, former assistant versus head coach at the two biggest schools in the state. That's going to be great for college basketball, especially at a time where, as I said, Duke and North Carolina is losing a little bit of relevance. So you talk about the excitement that this is going to create in this rivalry. It's going to be intense. A couple other thoughts. One, obviously the big story for, for you recruiting nerds. If you're not a recruiting nerd, I still think this is worth monitoring. Um, number one high school junior in America, this kid named DJ Wagner. You may have heard of his father, Dewan Wagner, who played for John Calipari at Memphis. Since DJ Wagner has basically emerged as an elite prospect the last three, four years, 
it's been considered a done deal that that DJ Wagner was going to end up at Kentucky for his one and done year. Cal Perry has a great relationship with Dewan Wagner, all that good stuff. Well, here's another wrinkle in that, and I know Kentucky fans and Louisville fans know this, but Dewan Wagner's father is a guy named Milt Wagner, and you know where Milt Wagner played? At Louisville with Kenny Payne. And so there's already some buzz that maybe Dewan Wagner isn't a done deal. DJ Wagner, I should say, isn't a done deal for Kentucky. Now, what I would say to that, I have no super inside information. I've never really heard a grandfather impacting recruiting before, okay? I've never really heard that element of it. And Dewan Wagner, of course, does a great relationship with John Calipari. I get the sense that the son will be able to make whatever decision he wants. Dewan, from everything I hear, seems to be a very hands-off father in terms of letting his son do what he wants. They keep him around town. They're not shipping him off to prep schools. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. He's playing high school ball at Camden High School. So that'll be interesting to follow. But Kenny Payne is your Louisville head coach. I'll say one last thing, too. I'll say this. I love college football. I love college basketball. It is really interesting to see the difference between the college football and college basketball coaching carousels, though. And what I mean by that is that in college football, it's all about the playoff. And really, there's about six or seven jobs that give you a better path to the playoff. And if you have the opportunity to get one, you go. So, for example, this year, Lincoln Riley. Is it going to work at USC? Is it not? I don't know. But what Lincoln Riley said is, I can win a lot of conference championships here at Oklahoma. I'm not so sure I can win a national championship, though. Let me go see if I can do it somewhere else. Same with Brian Kelly. Brian Kelly's like, I got Notre Dame about as far as I can go. Let me go to LSU where I can get more players, maybe win a national championship when I do get to the playoff. And it's funny to look at that as it pertains to college basketball, because college basketball is the exact opposite. It's what I just said a minute ago. With the portal in college basketball now, it's a total game changer. With the portal, you get three, four guys, you're there. You go from Kentucky, whatever they were last year, 9-16, and 16, and I know it's different, it's Kentucky, but you get the point. 9-16 and 16 to maybe win a national championship this year. You don't need to go to one of those two or three or four blue blood schools anymore. And I think that's going to be interesting going forward. I think it's interesting the number of marquee jobs that have opened up over the last probably year and a half and who has filled them. Arizona's a great job. Gonzaga assistant filled it. North Carolina's a great job, filled in by a, a sitting assistant head coach. Duke's a great job, filled in by a sitting assistant head coach. Indiana's a great job, filled by an NBA assistant with ties to the school. In college basketball, by the way, now obviously Louisville, getting an NBA assistant that has never been a head coach. And I bring it up because college basketball is so different. If you got a great job and you're making two, three, four million dollars a year, you don't gotta go to Louisville or Kentucky or Kansas or UCLA anymore. Now, somebody's always going to want to coach those schools. When UCLA opened, Mick, Mick Cronin wasn't their first choice. He might have been the best choice. Somebody's going to take that job. But at the same time, uh, guys don't have to leave good jobs to go other places for the chance to win at the highest level like they do in football. So I think it's going to be interesting to see over these next couple of years. I mean, at some point, and listen, this is way down the road, but at some point, John Calipari is going to retire. At some point, I don't know, some of these guys are going to leave, somebody might leave for the NBA. It's tough to get a good coach to take to leave a good job for another job. So those are my thoughts on Kenny Payne. Those are my thoughts on Louisville, but I'll give Louisville credit for this. I thought Kenny Payne was going to be the guy all along, and I think he's going to be a really, really good hire for the school. And with that said, I think it's time for me to get out of here. Long show today, 
fun show today? I mean, it, it was a great day of basketball. I just, I mean, if you're a fan of a certain team, it's just a really frustrating night. But I do think it is time for me to get out of here. Before I do, I want to remind you, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music. It is worth noting, one, we're going to continue to crush it all March long. More importantly, we don't stop when the tournament ends, okay? We're going to hit the portal. We're going to get back to some football stuff. We got some – there's actually been some interesting football things that I just haven't had time to get to, so we will have plenty of time to do that in April, May, June. And then by you know, pretty soon it's going to be SEC Media Days again before you know it. But make sure that you're subscribed. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to the show. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. I think that's all for tonight. I think it's time for me to get out of here. Thank you again for listening. Thank you again for subscribing, but it is time to go. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I will be back on Monday with a new episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.